My name is David Plummer, and this is the Hold Fast Podcast. Leadership had a profound impact on my path as an athlete, as a father, and now as a leadership development consultant. The purpose of this podcast is to explore what leadership is and how it can be developed and displayed in all of us. We're welcomed today by the director of the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport, Dr. Nicole Lavoie. Thanks for coming on and joining us today, Dr. Lavoie. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite, David. Well, we're excited to get into it today. And, and I really wanted to start with thinking about the culture of sport. When you're thinking about that sort of ecosystem or culture of sport, what are those things that sort of make it up that may be a little bit different from those other sectors outside of athletics? Well, I, I'm a visual person, and I know this is an audio podcast, but if everybody can just imagine a series of concentric circles, like those little uh, Russian dolls, what are those things called? The, nest- yeah, the nesting dolls. The nesting dolls, right. Okay, so the culture of sport, uh, like a series of nesting dolls, and the athletes in the middle. The, the smallest one. And that's the individual level. So everything an athlete brings to the sport culture plays into that personality, traits and attributes, beliefs, values. And then the next ring would be all the people around the athlete, the family, the siblings, if they have some peers, friends, teammates, teachers, coaches, community members, religious leaders, All the people around that person is also part of the culture. Then you could say you've got the team culture. That's the team and the coach just specific to the team. But then you have, depending on the setting, you might have a university athletic department. That's a culture. And all the rules and regulations and and policies that go into governing behavior at that level And then if you're thinking of elite athletes, it might be a national governing body, an NGB, an Olympic organizing committee. That's there. And then at the very outer layer, you've got society, right? You've got society that has the norms, the values, the stereotypes, the bias, the beliefs, the ideologies, and the way we think about sport. And so all those rings of influence make up the culture of sport that impact the athlete at the individual level. So it's really quite complex, but if you can think of a series of circles, that helps you sort of imagine the complexity. As we're thinking about all of those levels, maybe let's start with the team level. So if we're thinking about a coach, what does a coach have control over? What are they focused on at that level that's helpful to the athletes? Well, I think some coaches might think they have control over a lot more than what they do, but um, that's a different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's think about um, what they do have control over. So the culture that the coach creates is based on his or her philosophy and values and what they think sport is about, what it should be and shouldn't be. And so the team culture is a set of norms, rules, how we treat each other, what are the expectations, what are the consequences for rule violation, you know, what is it that makes our team our team? 
how, what is the we? What makes us unique? And so the coach really does have a lot of control over forming that culture. And I always think of a really cool thing that Lonnie Alameda said at um, one of the coaching academies for the NCAA. And she's the head softball coach at Florida State, national championship coach. And she tells her team every year, right, it's a new group of women on her team. But she says, it's my program, but it's your team. So there's a certain set of philosophical assumptions and beliefs that she's like, this is my program. These are non-negotiables. This is what I want my program to be about. But depending on the personnel on the team at any given year, they have they bring different things to the table. So I, I really like that idea of thinking about team culture. And that is something the coach does have control over. Well, I guess my initial follow-up is when you're working with coaches or you see teams or organizations kind of across the landscape within sport, how common is the level of intentionality that you're talking about? I would think of it as a continuum. So back to my visual, like on one end is a coach who has absolutely no clue and no intention. They aren't intentionally doing anything. They're just, you know, throwing the balls out and hoping somebody doesn't get injured, right? And they're just happy if the kids are running around. On the other end is coaches who are highly intentional, very explicit, have a very clear vision of what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I really think it varies uh, across the spectrum. And it, you know, it also varies by level. You can have coaches at the volunteer level that are very clear about doing culture, all the way up, you know, to the highest levels of coaching. So it doesn't have to be, you know, everybody at the Olympic or pro level is very intentional about creating a culture and those at the younger levels aren't. It just depends on the person. Do you see that level of intentionality play into the same thing as the more intentional you are, the more positive culture you have and the less intentional, the less positive? Boy, I mean, it... It probably does to some extent, but you just have so many factors. I mean, you have the skill set of the coach. They might really want to create a good culture. They don't know how. <laughs> they think they're doing the right thing. They've got it completely, you know, upside down. And so I think it depends on the coach and his or her skill set. But I think the more awareness and the more education and the more intentionality and the more the coach sees themselves as a learner, the more likely we're going to get a positive culture. I think you're right. That level of intentionality plays into the positivity of the culture. I don't think, at least from my experience and meeting a lot of coaches, that there's a lot of people that are trying to be intentionally malicious or anything like that. Absolutely not. I have rarely, rarely, rarely met coaches. There's like, I'm going to show up today and create a terrible, rotten, horrible culture where my athletes hate me and hate each other and hate the sport and want to quit. I mean, coaches don't do that, but you know, some unintentionally do create that culture. That's exactly how their athletes feel. That's kind of the question I wanted to get at was what is the impact when people are less intentional? What do we see happen when people aren't necessarily getting it right? So many, so many potentially uh, negative or deleterious outcomes for athletes. I mean, it could be stress, anxiety, 
poor body image, less enjoyment, less confidence, less skill development. They don't have quality relationships with the coaches or each other. They might have fear of failure. They could have bad sportsmanship. They might burn out. They might quit. I mean, there's so many potential negative outcomes of a result of coaches getting it wrong, which is one of the reasons why I am very passionate about coaching education is because I want to help coaches get it right. And a lot of coaches want to do the right thing, but they're just searching for information on how to do it. I mean, where do coaches turn? It's a difficult situation and it's not super easy to solve, but how are coaches finding those things? Well, I think first it starts with awareness. I mean, you have to just know what you don't know. The best coaches who are always striving to get it right are learners. They're lifelong learners. They're reading books. They're asking questions. They're listening to podcasts. They're going to professional development. They're calling up colleagues and they're learning. They're always, always learning. So I think it starts with awareness. You have to be aware that you don't know everything. And then once you realize that, there's lots of places to turn for additional knowledge. That, that makes a lot of sense. So are there other things that you're seeing coaches do? We know that there's kind of that traditional, when I learned about it in school, they called it the great man theory. That theory is inherently exclusive, right? And it's been just disproven over and over and over that there's not some heroic leader that's doing everything. There's a great collaborator. There's a great influencer. There's a great relationship builder. But what are those best coaches doing? What's their skill set that's helped them get to where they are? I love this question because it's really complex and nuanced, but there's three things that I could say right off the top of my head of really great coaches at any level. This from, you know, national championship, division one, down to youth, is that one, it's not about winning. That's not the primary focus. We all like to win, but really good coaches talk about the process of how they build their team culture to increase the likelihood of winning. But winning is not at the center of their philosophy. So that's number one. Two, they're selfless people. It's not about them. And I've done a really cool study with one of my former doctoral students, um, Maya Hamilton, and that we have two articles published around moral exemplar coaches. And I'd be happy to send it to you if you want to put it in the show notes, or you could probably Google it. But these coaches were nominated by their peers because they were highly successful, but also because they were moral exemplars. And we interviewed them. And what really became clear to us is that they are teachers. They are teachers. And they teach not only sport, but life skills and everything else that, you know, we know sport can give. So they're not about winning, although they're highly successful. They are not egotistical. It is all about being a selfless leader and serving the athletes. That coaching is a calling and that they teach. So those are really sort of the three really high level things that I think really good coach leaders do. And I can get into a little more of the granular if you want me to. 
I would love to because I mean that that first one especially, right? We're not putting winning as the number one thing. Mm-hmm. That seems to me as almost running contrary to what we believe about sport. So many people are out there saying competition builds character and if we just really dive into the competition of it and shoot for being our best to win, we're going to learn all of the things just sort of naturally along the way that it takes to get there. Yeah. But you're saying no, it doesn't actually look like that. It can. It can. There are many coaches who just focus on, you know, building performance and being competitive and they're, they do win a lot, but there's, there's a cost sometimes. It goes back to what are the negative outcomes I talked about earlier when we get it wrong, you might win a lot and be highly successful. I'm putting that in air quotes by definition of winning, but the cost to the athletes and their psychological, emotional, mental health and well-being and physical well-being may suffer. So I think that's important. Yeah, the the automatic focus on winning does not lead to all these great character attributes of athletes. It takes intentionality by the coach to explicitly build a culture where that can flourish and grow. If we're kind of looking at that culture of winning that's been around for so long, where is this coming from? Like, does it come from external pressure? Does it come from the system itself? Does it come from the coach's ego of just wanting to be the best? Is it a little bit of each? Where, where do we see the influence of that come into play? Well, we could go back to the system, David, of, you know, societally, not even in sport, but we like winners. I mean, listen to political rhetoric or the business world. Uh, We want to be the best. We want to make money. I mean, so, you know, sociologists would argue this is the result of being and living in a capitalistic society where it's bigger, faster, better, more. And that trickles down into sport. And we like winners. We value winners. We show winners on TV. We celebrate winners. And so it's just part of the fabric and the value of, of American culture And so, you know, that outer societal ring, it goes there all the way down to the individual level where we internalize, you know, I'm an athlete, you've been a highly successful athlete, we like to win. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want that to, to the listeners, like, we all like to win. And there's nothing wrong with being competitive and wanting to win. But as a coach of other people, is the culture that you design to get people to win. If you focus on the winning first, there's a cost to that, a human cost, a relational cost, a mental, psychological, maybe physical cost. So if you don't care about that, you're like, you know, I don't care. Just want to win. Bring me a medal. You know, you're, you're destroyed after the Olympics are over and, you know, I got my medal and, you know, looks good for me and you don't care. Well then fine. But, you know, I believe and many others believe that sport is not, that's not the way it should be. And we can do it better. You can have both. You can win and be highly competitive and you can develop well-rounded humans that have a positive experience. But that goes back to the intentionality. So, you know, we can't blame coaches for being in a system where we value winning at all costs because 
that's the world we live in. But it goes back to that awareness piece. We have to be aware like, oh yeah, I'm getting all this pressure to win. If I don't win, I'll lose my job or I won't get that next job or, you know, but to dial it back and be like, what do I value and what do I hold important? And how do I build my culture from the ground up instead of the top down of when it all costs? I had a, a friend tell me that his metaphor was in the 80s, you're throwing a hundred eggs up against the wall and the one that doesn't break, that egg is going to the Olympics, but every other egg is broken. Oh, You've interesting. kind of broken all of these other people. Right. All of this has been reinforced for so long, but now we're seeing that there's a different way. Mm-hmm. But that different way is almost a paradox where we still want to win. But in order to win, we have to not focus on winning. We have mm-hmm. to focus on all of these other things, which I think is difficult. And it almost kind of leads to your second point of being selfless, getting a big paycheck and being interviewed and doing all of these, those things. It's really difficult to stay grounded and selfless in a system that maybe reinforces the wrong things. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that really stood out to me. These really highly successful coaches that were part of that moral exemplar study. I mean, these coaches between them had multiple national championships, coach of the year, conference, all Americans up and down the board. But what they were most proud of is not the championships, but they talked about the relationships that they developed with their athletes and how proud they were to see their athletes grow and become well-rounded human beings. That was one of my favorite studies I've ever done because you just got to sit back and listen and learn. So I guess my follow-up, I feel like this podcast is really just me asking you giant questions to try to solve all of these giant (laughs) issues. Well, I have a lot of thought, but probably not a lot of answers because there are no answers to this because it's complicated. It really is. But what do you suggest? If you're a young coach what can that person do or, or what can we do within the system of sport to reinforce these right things, to focus a little bit more on the culture and the relationships and to be more athlete focused? Well, as a professor, education, <laughs> <laughs> a little bias there, but you know, my answer to that is always education. That never serves us wrong. The more you expose people to the ideas we're talking about, then they can move in that direction. Think of one of those big buffets, right? You go to a restaurant. Well, not now because it's COVID and that seems kind (laughs) of gross. But, you know, when we used to go to a restaurant and there was a giant buffet of, you know, 80 things you could choose from, what do you choose? Like what resonates with you? And then learn as much as you can about that. It's not right for everybody, but for those who want to get it right and really care about people, care about athlete development as human, whole human beings, and don't want to throw the eggs on the wall and break 99 and one succeeds. You know, how about let's reverse that? Let's have maybe one broken one that you didn't do intentionally, but, um, but you have 99 ones that made it through your program, whole, happy, enjoyed their sport experience, human beings. You know, that to me is what coaching should be. It was, um, at a conference where a speaker was talking about some research that they had led, kind of like you're doing. You researched the top coaches. This person had researched the top 1% of the top 1% of 
teachers. And he was like, there were some commonalities that we were finding among these best of the best teachers. These were the teachers that, you know, a kid comes in and they advance like two or three grade levels in that one year. And what they found, or one of the things that they found that I thought was so amazing was these teachers had an underlying belief that everybody wanted to learn regardless of what they're showing you. And I thought, what a powerful belief to not write anybody off, to say everybody wants to learn. And it's up to me to find the way to connect with those kids. Mm -hmm. John Wooden said, you haven't taught anyone anything until they've learned something. So he puts the onus back on the teacher, on the educator, on the coach, Mm -hmm. which I think is so appropriate. It gets to the responsibility of leadership. These are the things that you're responsible for as a leader. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of my mentors, um, the late Dr. Steve Wilkinson at Gustavus Adolphus College, who, to my knowledge, is still the most winningest tennis coach in college tennis at any division. He had a great skill. He would be one of these coaches like a wooden, you know, that did it right, that had a philosophy and grounded his whole program on it. And one of his former players, he was not only my mentor, but, you know, he's the kind of guy where if you talk to anybody, they're like, I was, I was Wilkes favorite, you know, (laughs) he was that kind of coach. And, um, this player said, Wilk treated us not for the person we were at that time, but for the person he knew we could become our best self. And he would push us in that direction ever so gently. So it's like the 1% of the one teachers, David, is that they could see that potential. He could see that in us. And I was a benefactor of that. I would not be sitting here on this podcast right now if he didn't see that in me. Because believe me, I was quite a bit of a knucklehead in college. (laughs) (laughs) I I can relate as a former knucklehead and still sometimes part-time. I mean, we never can grow completely out (laughs) of that because we're human. (laughs) Right. That's kind of the tough thing about the study of leadership and coaching, right? Because it's sometimes really hard to quantify the positive results. Mm -hmm. But if you felt them, you know how meaningful they are. Well, and, and, David, you know, I have a favorite framework that I always share when I talk about, you know, the culture that coaches build is that feeling when you're in that culture where a coach is getting it right is that they care about you as a whole human. They help you develop your competence in all different realms, psychologically, emotionally, physically, you know, skill building competence that they're helping you grow and evolve as a human being. And that they help you become an autonomous person. You're learning how to self-coach and be your best self without that person. And so, you know, that is really at the heart of a good culture that coaches are creating when athletes feel that those needs are being supported about being competent, feeling cared about, and feeling like self-determined and autonomous humans that we're not being controlled. And that's a feeling. And that's been supported by research. That's so cool. So you've been doing this a while. You've been in the field. You've been <laughs> Are a you coach. calling me old, David? <laughs> that's what I just heard. <laughs> you got a lot of experience, <laughs> a right? A wily and, veteran at you, this point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. That's a that's a good way to put it. But I'm curious, have you seen evolution? Are people more open to this now? this type of approach than they have been in the past? 
I would like to say yes. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that all the stuff we've been talking about, David, that there is a movement afoot. And I think there are quite a few people in the sports space and coaching education that are are leveraging the science to help push us forward to be better collectively. I do think that there is more energy and attention to this than there has been in the past. And I think it is a generational shift as, as the coaching science has grown and developed as a body of knowledge, it's pretty clear what good and effective coaching looks like and what it does not. And those people that are on the does not part, they're, they're finding themselves sort of pushed to the margins as the norm of what it looks like to be a good coach is shifting. So I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I like that answer. Everything from my point of view is a little more anecdotal, but it just kind of matches what you see. Even some of the coaches that I know traditionally have been a little bit more hardline are not as much so as they once were. And there's a part of that of just recognizing that this generation is different. I heard for a long time that kids these days don't want to work or kids these days, you know, are too entitled. And I've just never bought into that because we're still breaking world records, right? Teams are competing better than they've ever competed before. The, the level of performance is not going backwards. It's going way, way forwards. So it just isn't easy to buy into that. But Mm-mm. I think to your point, for those coaches that are getting pushed to the margins, there's the ones that are maybe angry about it that are just going to be angry in the corner about everything. And anytime they get a chance, they'll yell at somebody to say, we're all getting it wrong. But there's also those people that are doing their best, right? The tough thing about coaching is because there is a lot of lack in terms of what you can do initially in your career to really accelerate and learn, it's just tough. Mm-hmm. Well, and what I like right now, um, and this might be part of pushing us forward, is not only do we have a lot of different areas of sports science converging together, sports psychology, sports sociology, exercise physiology, strength and conditioning, um, coaching science, you know, that that body of knowledge is coming together. But we also have athletes that have grown up expecting to play and expecting to have agency. And they don't just want to like, just do what you're told the end anymore. And I think that's a good thing because they're pushing back on the status quo of like, well, we've always done it this way and it's worked well, has it really worked? And should we really be doing it that way? And what is the status quo? And how do we create a new status quo to meet the generational shift? Because every generation, old people, they're like, well, that generation kids these days. I mean, it's it's the same thing. It's like, and, you know, when, when your kids grow up, they're going to be saying the same thing about the generation behind them. So that's not a, a, that's not a valid argument. So let's just let that one go. Yes, we want to understand cross-generational factors, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we know what human beings need and want. And so that's the job of the coach is to create that culture that, that supports human needs at the end of the day, period. You're bringing up a great point about the athlete voice and having or expecting more agency within the system. What would you say is leading to that? 
I don't know if this is right, but I'm. it's just what popped into my head, is they have a platform. I mean, social media and the internet is created agency because it's immediate, it's visible, it's consumed by fans. I mean, 50 years ago with no internet and no Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or, you know, whatever it is today, no one was listening. Now they, you know, if Simone Biles has a tweet it's around the world in two seconds. I mean, that is a lot of power. And I think athletes are starting to realize they have power in ways that they have not realized before. And that's a good thing. I think so too. Depending on how you're looking at social media, it can be a real positive or a real (laughs) negative, right? You know, especially from the athlete perspective, but I think you got it right. I think that that's a really incredible point that there is this ability to have a voice in the system and say when things are wrong. And I think there's also this athlete education piece that's really important. I work a lot with our freshman student athletes, framing for them, you have this power. Mm -hmm. So now it's on you to be intentional with it. Yep. But I think that there's that level of education that's that's probably important to get right. Yeah. And how to get athletes to use their agency in positive ways and not in abusive ways or detrimental ways or negative ways. And there's plenty of examples of that, too. But they do have voice and they do have agency and they should exercise that. And I think when athletes are using their voices to report abuse and mistreatment and discrimination, that's a good thing. And we're seeing that across the board. And I do want to say that those athletes most at the margins, women, women of color, athletes of color, athletes with um, disability, is that media platforms gives them agency and visibility in ways that they don't normally get where it's the, you know, a few of the men's major sports getting all the air attention and everybody else is invisible. So I think you're also seeing that the social change and the agency is being pushed by those who have traditionally been at the margin. And I think that we need to pay attention to that. That's, a, that's such a good point. The social change, what a positive thing to start seeing and to start seeing such a, a wide variety of athletes and teams for everyone to watch. One little area of sport may not be becoming more inclusive, but all of sport definitely is becoming more inclusive, which mm-hmm. is a really positive thing to see. Well, and, and along with athlete agency goes back to the coach. So if I'm a coach and I want control over my athletes and everything they do and say and behave and wear, you know, that's not developing agency in athletes. That's control. And so when coaches sort of let go of that, then the athlete agency has more likely to develop and flourish. But coaches have to be okay with giving up some of their power and or teaching the athletes how to have agency in a healthy way that leads to human development and growth. What a really important conversation that I, I don't know is going <laughs> on as much as you would hope. Uh, probably not, but there it's happening some places, but not enough. Well, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Lavoie, for coming on and sharing your expertise and, and wisdom with us. It's always fun when we get a chance to connect. Agree, David. And I love the questions that you ask are always very philosophical. It gets me thinking a little bit outside my my normal headspace. So thanks for a fun conversation.
The Hold Fast Podcast is produced by Premier Sports Psychology and a part of the Premier Podcast Educational Series. For more information, please visit premiersportspsychology.com or check out our online educational suite at mindsetprogram.com.